Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. This episode comes to you again from the keynotes and conversations that took place at our International Drama Summit as part of Content London earlier this month. Netflix Vice President of International Originals Kelly Luganbeal sat down with C21 Editor-in-Chief and Managing Director David Jenkinson to talk about the streaming giant's growing slate of overseas originals, including its first from Africa, Norway and Egypt, plus others such as Henry Cavill starring fantasy drama The Witcher, due to debut tomorrow. Luganbeal also talked about her favourite non-Netflix shows, the way in which the company's responding to its new array of rivals, plus the kind of programming it's looking for moving into 2020 and beyond. What follows is an audio extract from a full video version of Kelly's Content London session, now available on C21 to International Drama Summit delegates. Welcome, everybody. Just a little bit of context before we get into a conversation. Uh, you know, Ted Sarandos has, has leaned heavily into the importance of Netflix originals, uh, stating that around 85% of last year's 12 billion content budget was devoted to these, with some 700 series coming down the pipeline, including 80 non-English language titles. You know, there is lots of competition on the horizon. We all know that. There's lots of SVOD uh, competition coming out there, so it's going to be interesting what <laughs> Kelly thinks about that. But the, the, the view is with 60 million subscribers in the US and 158 million subscribers worldwide by 2025, Netflix is in a very strong position and continues to, to lead the pace. So uh, the first thing I'd like us to do is to welcome um, Kelly to the stage. Welcome, Thank Kelly. You. <laughs> Thank you. And um, to find out a little bit about how, how, you, how, you, how you dropped into this position, can you just give us a brief snapshot of the, of the journey uh, that you've had through Netflix to the, to, to the job you have to do now? Sure, of course. So I have been at Netflix just over four years. I was the first content executive hired to work on the creative for the non-English language shows. And back in those days, we were a bit of an experiment. We thought we would do maybe 12, 15 uh, shows outside of the US originals. And four years later, here we are with those numbers that you just just listed off, which is amazing. Um, since that time, we also have moved content executives around the world and hired in content executives from every country where we're producing. And it's just been a really exciting time. So I've been in Amsterdam a little over a year, as well as the rest of my team. Tell us a little bit about how you're building out that local um, uh, office base, because I know that uh, the consolidation of your original strategy is very, very important as more competition comes into the market. So where are you now? Where are you going next? What's the priority? Yeah, so uh, we have an office here in London. We have offices in Madrid as well as Studio Space, which has been great for us in, with sort of the boom of Spanish production happening. Uh, I came on Monday from the opening of our Paris office. So that was our first day in our new location, which is really exciting for us. And we have a team in Berlin, so we're in the process of opening an office there. And we're just sort of looking around to see where those next opportunities might be. But in addition to that, we obviously have offices in Mumbai, Singapore, Tokyo, Seoul, Sydney, Mexico City, Sao Paulo. So it's, uh, it's grown very quickly. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about that, the, the sort of the breadth of the, of the production and where it's coming from and maybe walk past a few case studies that represent that sort of initiative. So maybe we can start by looking at um, 
uh, Queen Sonna, which is your first all-African all, all original. Uh, can you tell us all about this project, how it came about, and I suppose more importantly, why it came about? What's the mission there? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for us, as we've started expanding internationally and doing more original productions in, um, in different countries around the world, obviously there are the places like France and Germany and Brazil that are the places where you're going to begin. But as we've seen how people's appetite for this content has grown, we've had the opportunity to do even more more in different places like Africa, uh, which is a really, really exciting one for us. So we have three uh, productions from South Africa right now and two that we're working on for Nigeria. But this is our first one, Queen Sono. And it came to us through some filmmakers who we had licensed their film originally and had it on Netflix. So had seen, had been able to see the performance of that. But as we started talking with them and having conversations, just realized that we really had a kind of meeting of the minds in terms of what we wanted to present for our first original from Africa, which was not anything that would have been traditional or stereotypical. And they had a great relationship with Pearl Tusi, who had been in the film as well, and uh, came to us with this amazing uh, African story about a female spy who is defending the, uh, the sort of the, um, the importance of, of what is happening in Africa and, and really sort of the heart and soul of the continent. And as with any great spy story, she also has a crazy personal life. And so it's sort of that blend of her professional and personal life together. And that's what Queen Sono is. So going into a new market where you haven't got as much experience and don't know the, the, the community as, as well, what, what gives you confidence to make that bet? I mean, is it the fact that there has to have been something there already? Is it the, the, uh, the idea is just uh, you can't ignore it? Or, uh, and what, what danger signs do you have in terms of not working with someone as well as working with someone? We really are artist and filmmaker driven, especially in these first so in these first uh, series. So you know you can see that with um, Dark, you can see that with The Rain, you can see that with Sabura, and um, that was the same case here with South Africa. So we were fans of Kahiso, we were fans of Pearl, and this was a great concept that we thought the world hadn't seen before. So it was something that we wanted to to take a, a shot on. Our second series from South Africa is called Blood and Water, which is a really exciting young adult series and. It also comes from a filmmaker, Nashifo, who we were introduced through uh, her film that had been at a number of different film festivals around the US. And she came to us and said, I have never seen authentic teen stories that represent my life and uh, the, the way that I grew up. And that's what I want to do. And we thought that was undeniable. And she came in with this great thriller package element to it. And we feel like that's something that teens and people who love teen shows all around the world are going to love. And what's the third project? Yeah. The third one uh, we haven't announced yet. Yeah. It's no one. No one's listening. Uh, yeah, exactly. Let's just say uh, it plays in a genre that people are fans of, uh, and taps into taps into something that uh, that um, that Africa has an expertise. Is in. it female-led as well? Uh, yes. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Three female-led stories yes. about Africa. Yes. Where does that sit in the agenda? Then it's, it's it's part of the. Did it just happen that way, or did that was that on purpose in terms of going down a female-led route? You know, for us, we really look at coming in and trying to make stories that possibly haven't had the opportunity to be told before. So I say to my team every day, you guys are so lucky. You get to say yes to people who don't hear yes very often. And so what a gift that is to be able to find filmmakers whose stories would not have been heard, um, maybe not even in their own country, let alone on a global platform. And so, you know, diverse voices, female voices, uh, stories that are a little bit outside the norm, that's what's really exciting for us. 
Cool. Well, let's move on to Home for Christmas. Could you set the scene for us? What's that project all about? Where did it come from and what, what jobs it designed to do? Yes, yeah, so this is our first original from Norway, which is launching today. As Dave and I were chatting backstage, I'm a big fan of Christmas. So this one has a special, a special, a special soft spot for me. <laughs> exactly. Um, but our, uh, this was, you know, when we thought about uh, doing holiday programming, which is some of you guys may have seen is something um, which we love at Netflix and is doing really well for us. We thought, well, where is another place in the world where it would be great to see sort of a holiday story and of course we thought about the Nordics and we partnered uh, with um, a great production company and Pearl Sorensen, our director who had done quicksand for us and they came in and they really just had a love letter to uh, to sort of all of the Christmas films that you love so much and um, did it with heart and comedy and romance and and sort of really checked all the boxes so we're excited about this cool. one we were able to work with a lot of local artists in terms of creating the soundtrack and so even just just the specificity of having music that is from the countries where we're working is something I think really adds to the shows as well. And, and with that project in particular, because it's always good to talk specifics, what sorts of notes do you end up giving back to a project like that? What's the initial brief and what did you have to do along the way to get it to be what you wanted it to be? What can you, do you have a sense of that? What I mean, this was, we were really lucky because Prolov and the team had this show. They knew what they wanted to tell. They just needed the opportunity to be able to do that. We love to collaborate with, um, with our creators and we always say to them, we're as available for as much or as little as you need. So some people um, are excited to have us um, through the writing process and uh, through the editing process and some people really have it and, and are off to the races and want to just check in to kind of sense check where they are. So it really is uh, unique to each project in the way that we work. Let's talk a little bit more about the longer term commitment to Netflix and what we can ex expect to see next. Um, have you got um, a very defined mission or is that mission defined what comes out of those markets and what are the next two or three that you're, that you're looking forward to seeing? Yes. So for us, I would say our, our mission is really to tell local stories that are going to have important local impact. So I think, you know, finding shows that can really sort of get into the cultural conversation and to reach a high enough number of viewers that people, you know, they, there's ownership over it and they're excited and they talk about it. And it, I've talked, I've told the story before, but the first time uh, that I went back to Rome after we had launched the first season of Sabora, I couldn't believe it. We were driving down the street and there was a cab and there was a bar called Sabora. You know, that was a word that sort of our, our, our creators and producers had come up with that was in like an ancient Roman word. But but that is the kind of thing where you know that you've really sort of permeated uh, the, the cultural conversation that I think is really exciting for us. And then the sort of secondary aspect of it is that when we see that great local impact and the really authentic and specific stories, that's where they're finding the more universal global audience. So the more local that we are and the more specific we are, the more universal we actually are. Where have you not got a local story that you'd like one at the moment? Oh, that's an exciting one. So we are currently in production on our first series for Egypt. I'm really excited about what we're doing in the Middle East. Obviously, Egypt has been sort of the home of Arabic language cinema and film for a long time. And I think that that's going to be a really exciting, a really exciting place for us. You haven't seen it yet, but there are some great things coming. And then, you know, as I mentioned, we have South Africa, we have Nigeria. I would love to find a story for Kenya as well. So just sort of like kind of expanding as we go. 
Cool. So I wonder if we should uh, talk a little bit about the gift. Yes. So Turkey has been just really thrilling for us. And as everybody in this room knows, I'm sure Turkish dramas are loved all around the world. And when we went to Turkey originally, uh, you know, we thought, well, what can we offer that maybe isn't already being offered, but still really do what is done so well in Turkish dramas? And so our first series was The Protector, which is a bit of romance, a bit of action, superhero comedy, and it was great to see audiences around the world really respond to that. I think the other thing that made it really unique was it was a shorter number of episodes than is traditionally done in Turkey. It was eight for the first season and um, and also shorter number of episodes, so 45. And so with our second series, The Gift, uh, that one starred Çatay, who was one of the bigger male stars in Turkey. And we definitely wanted to make sure that we were sort of uh, representing our female audience as well. And so we turned to Beren Sat, who is the biggest female star in Turkey, and really started talking to her about the kinds of things that she wanted to do. And uh, with her help and the help of our production company, company OG came up with this series and uh, our writer Everin had been sort of traveling around uh, different areas of Turkey and with the protector we knew that that had been very much in the heart and soul of Istanbul and loving Turkey as much as I do we were like let's find out the other side of Turkey and so that's what this show really explores. What did you learn on the first series that you employed when you were making the second series? What, 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 what did you not want to do the same or differently to make the second one as successful as the first I think we realized that uh, that sort of we shot two seasons of both of these back to back and that we needed to have maybe a bit more time in between season one and season two so it wasn't quite able to emulate the length of the Turkish production schedules where they can shoot 20, 20 episodes in a row we needed a bit more time and breathing room for our writers and directors to, to sort of regroup and then start that second season can we talk a little bit about uh, an, another new another new series uh, Ragnarok what is that? What's that translator? Maybe there are some fans of Norse mythology that okay. are familiar with the term Ragnarok, but this is definitely um, our sort of young adult twist on that uh, mythology. And so I think it's been interesting because North, Norse mythology has obviously been told in the English language time and time again, but we haven't actually seen it in Norwegian language. And so our, our producers from Sam Productions and Adam Price came to us with this really inspired idea that has a new twist on that Norse mythology and for us what is really exciting is these young adult series we're seeing them really work kind of um, in their home countries but then also regionally and globally so there's a trend from things like starting with 3% uh, in Brazil to baby in Italy and Elite in Spain and we feel like Ragnarok really continues that tradition for us. What, why that genre is it was it re really the project that walked in the door and you thought that's right or did you put a call out saying we want something like this? It was a little bit of both. So I would say we learned a lot from the rain and then that followed with quicksand as well when we were sort of looking at our Scandinavian audiences and, and what they were responding to. But I think there's such a high level of filmmaking in, in the Nordics and uh, a lot of the creators grew up watching sort of young adult series from other places but hadn't necessarily had the opportunity to do it in their own language. And because of our, our sort of global scale, we don't have to look at the audience just for that one country. So we're able to um, you know, bet a little bigger on a show that in just one country might be a smaller audience size. So for us, being able to do things like that is, is exciting. And, and, you know, if you talk to Yannick or Christian or the guys at Miso who made The Rain, they would say that that show wouldn't have gotten made in Denmark just alone. So it was important for it to have a platform like Netflix. I mean, from a demographic perspective, a lot of this is young, um, age-wise. Uh, 
is that always the zone that you're going to be commissioning? Where, where does the rest of it sit? And how is the balance across those different age ranges, for, for starters, going to be uh, rolled out over the coming years? Mm -hmm. One of the really interesting things about Netflix that I think people sometimes forget or they don't realize is we don't collect any of that data or information. So we know your username and your profile, so your email address and your profile. And it's really based on the taste of the audience and what they're watching. So we're not necessarily targeting you know, shows for this certain age group. It just happens to be that a lot of our audience is enjoying shows that are focusing on these younger characters. But I think we do have a real range of, of shows that you'll see. I mean, obviously things like Dark to Sacred Games in India and um, Sabora in Italy and, and Baron Show. So it really is a, a wide range of ages of characters I would say we're focused on. But it's more about what's that great story and who are the creators that we're excited about that are passionate about telling stories on, um, on Netflix. Okay, all right. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit more broadly then about um, the state of the market that you operate in. And um, I know that your focus is programming, so we don't want to get lost in the sort of, um, you know, the fights between the new SFOs. But how do you think you're going to define your content mission going forward differently? if at all, with the arrival of more competition and clearly a, a, a very different fight for rights and audience and eyeballs. Is there going to be a change? I think for us, what we're doing is working. And so, you know, that we just want to be doing more of that. So as much as great content as we can make and that audiences are loving, then we're doing the right thing. So if people stop watching our shows, I think that will be an indication of us that for us that we need to make a shift. But that's not happening right now. And I think we're just really scratching the, the surface on the particularly non-English language content. So, you know, this is just a very small slice of the things that um, that are coming. but. It also opens up a world of unscripted, doc series, sketch comedy, stand-up, kids, live-action kids. So I think when we think about non-English language content, this is really just the beginning. How, how is the production ramp-up going to change over the coming years? What, what are you going to do next year? How many shows are you, are you green-lighting for the next 12 months? Sort of just ballpark. Yeah. You know, within... we, have, we haven't announced an exact number, okay. but... Uh, more than last year? Yes, more than last year. So, how many did you do last year? Uh, I think we did... I think from EMEA, so it depends on how you, you kind of think of it. I would say for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, which is our territory, probably around 20-something. Okay. So and what were the most we'll successful probably, ones from that portfolio? We'll probably... Um, what were the most successful ones from that portfolio? That's a good question, because uh, we started the year and uh, and it's been it's been a wild twelve months. But we had a lot of second seasons that performed really really well. So you know, uh, Baby in Italy, Plancor in France, uh, The Protector in um, The Protector in Turkey, The Rain season two, Dark season two. So I think what was really uh, validating about that is that audiences are not just coming to sort of like check it out, flash in the pan the novelty. They're really building loyalty with these shows and then returning season over season and we're even seeing them grow. And how's the approach changing in terms of where the IP is coming from? A lot of the bigger players in the market are very much focused on, on buying expensive IP and it doesn't seem that that's as much of a focus for you, but, but am I wrong? Are you looking for, is it a more of an independent film approach or are you, are you out there chasing that big IP as well? For us, 
it's a great story is a great story. So sometimes that comes with IP and sometimes that's just an original idea. And I think what IP is, it can be a lot of different things. So we're working on a show in France right now with Omar C, who's the biggest uh, French film star. And it's a new adaptation of Arsène Lupin, which is a character that is very, very well known, um, but it's also a very old character. But the sort of the interesting twist and flip on that is Omar in this role, which is something that is gonna feel really unique. So I think how we think about IP is, um, is really just as good as the talent that comes with it. And so it can be a great book, it can be a great comic, it can be a great podcast. We're excited about all of those, but then who are the writers and directors that have the strong point of view that are gonna bring it to life? So times are changing. There was a time a few years back where you defined one model of production and partnered more and um, now perhaps collaborate less and the sort of the, the value of those deals are, are changing as well and the structure of the business is changing and talent's becoming more entrepreneurial and everyone's getting wise to it and you've got a load of competition coming in. Uh, how are the, how's the deal structure going to change going forward and how do you think that you will continue to encourage talent to bring their projects to you and work with you in clearly a, a, a time when things are becoming a, more, more threatening? Yeah, I think what's really important for everybody to know is that it, deals are not one size fits all, just like content is not one size fits all. And so for us, there are certain deal models that work better for certain types of shows and then there, there are other types of deal models and everything in between. So whether it's a license show, a uh, co-production, it's something with shared rights, it's something where Netflix has all of the rights. It's really like what is the um, what is the project and what's important for our partners in terms of like making that deal. So it is definitely not one size fits all and it's really uh, it's really I think some of the fun of getting to work at Netflix is you can sort of make every project unique and specific from the deal all the way through the creative aspects. Did you have a project that got away in the last 12 months that went somewhere else? Ah, a project that got away. Well, I would say we've been a little bit lucky that I haven't, I haven't had that, but I will say I was a big fan of Chernobyl, and I remember when they announced that a few years ago, I thought, ah, oh, that's the kind of show that I wish our team would have done. Obviously, if we would have done it, it would have been in Russian language, so it would have been a very different show, but that was, a, that was kind of that, that idea where it's a, a, a local story, but that sort of impacted the globe. I think that's interesting to hear your own sort of personal taste in terms of the sort of stuff that you like and, and watch yourself as well. I mean, when you're watching stuff not on Netflix, which I'm sure you don't do, but you're aware of things that are on other channels yeah. around the world. Yeah. Um, what are the sorts of things that you like and think, oh yeah, I wish we had that? Uh, well, I just I just uh, was binging Mandalorian. I mean, that baby Yoda just kills me. Like I couldn't get enough of that baby Yoda. Uh, I think I think uh, so. I really like genre programming. I do like the big kind of world building stuff uh, personally. And then you know I'm working a lot on scripted shows, so it's kind of fun to watch unscripted shows. I'm a big fan of Love Island. Natalie, who just joined our team, worked on Love Island, and I'm always like, tell me all the stories. I need to know everything. So I think that uh, it. It's, it's, a, it's funny, it's a little bit like Netflix itself, depending on what day of the week it is, how tired I am, what mood I'm in, my own taste kind of changes with it. In terms of the form, I, mean, I know Netflix has allowed producers to play with form and length and, and all that sort of stuff, but in, in terms of like, like who is the Netflix killer? I mean, that's a sort of an early question in the, in the market, but is there something out there that you guys look at and think, oh, right, they might cause us a bit of a threat? You know, Quibi, for instance, where does that sit right. when you're thinking about competitive uh, players in the market and how that might affect how, how, how you yeah. behave? 
I think for us, like the real danger is gonna be if we get complacent and we stop taking risks and we stop doing the things that got us to where we are today. So, um, you know, it's just really important that we keep looking for, uh, looking under the rocks for the great ideas, finding the new filmmakers um, and taking the risks in terms of what types of shows we're doing. Um, you know, we're starting to think about what the first uh, interactive series could be for non-English language, okay. you know, really looking at um, what Bandersnatch did and thinking, okay, how can we make that work outside of uh, English language? So there's all these things. Uh, there's a show that we're working on in France right now that is a uh, shorter number of runtime minutes. But I think for us, really, the difference between um, you know film and series and runtime and all of that, it always goes back to the core question, what's the best thing for the story? Um, because that's really going to be the most important thing for us, and that's really what audiences are going to respond to. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? So sort of focus on, on a bit more unscripted a bit more interactivity and a little bit more in terms of length and short form. So they're, they're clearly some sort of drivers that change the way you think. Yeah, about I mean, those are just things that we're trying. But yeah, then, yeah. you know, we also have this beautiful new show coming from Damien Chazelle, which is The Eddie, which is really, uh, you know, every episode is, um, is a longer form length. And um, the first two episodes were shot on film. So I think that's even a different way to kind of try something new. Um, and I think when I see that series, it, it, it stands out from, um, from other things on Netflix because it is so unique in terms of that format. So should we talk about a little project you've got coming up called The Witcher? Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the evolution yes. of that story? The Witcher, the uh, the overnight fantasy series that took three years. Um, so this, this is our uh, series that's launching on December 20th. Um, that comes to us from the uh, that comes to us from um, uh, a series of Polish fantasy novels written by Andrzej Sapkowski, and um, he created this really rich, deep world uh, based on the idea of a witcher, which is a monster hunter. So, our showrunner Lauren Schmidt Hisrich um, brought all of these books kind of to life in a really unique and exciting way, and weaving together different storylines. And Henry Cavill is the the witcher himself, but there are also these amazing these two amazing young female characters, uh, one who is played uh, by, one who's called Yennefer, who's played by um, Anya Chalotra, and uh, she is the most powerful sorceress in the world. And then we have our young princess, who is sort of the, the, the sort of the, um, the linchpin of whether the continent will sort of be destroyed or survive. And so really, they come together to form this very unique and unlikely family. They're all outcasts who come together, and so for us, this has been, again, it is that sort of hybrid of series and film, and uh, it has kind of the epic scopic world building that you would see in films, but also sort of that really character-driven storytelling that you see in series, and excited to bring both of those together. Witcher is a really exciting example of uh, a, a piece of IP that was very well known in Europe, but maybe not quite as well known outside the world, and has been this truly um, constructed European series. We shot it in Budapest and the Canary Islands, and places in Poland and Austria and uh, brought together HODs from all over the continent. And uh, and so now that really, truly Polish-European story is going to be a, hopefully a global story.
What lessons did you learn along the way with that project? Is there anything that, what, was there any oh, moments? Oh, so many moves? lessons, <laughs> so many lessons. Uh, that if you choose to shoot in Budapest in the spring, it could become the rainiest uh, spring that they've ever had. And we were shooting in the mud and had to, had to shut down a couple days because there was mud up to everybody's knees and our trucks were getting stuck everywhere. Um, I think, uh, you know, we learned a lot about colored contact lenses uh, and how difficult those can be to shoot with. Um, and then I think that just that like you, you know, we can't underestimate the, the importance of, of kind of the voice and the showrunner. So Lauren was amazing in just not ever losing focus and not ever losing kind of sight of what the ultimate goal was. And I think that's really what pulled us through, like a seven month, very intense shoot, a lot of, you know, newer actors. Um, and I think it was, uh, it was really a labor of love from kind of like all angles. Obviously on this one we've already ordered a season two. I think when you do these um, yeah, these big world building shows, if you want to find a way to return them within a decent amount of time, it's important that you start working on them. But this was really based on the quality of the episodes for season one and the quality of the scripts that we had ordered for season two and our belief in the talent in front of and behind the screens. And then really just knowing how much love there is for these books and, um, and this world and feeling like if we didn't have the opportunity to do a season two, we would have left something on the table. And that's never what you want to do in storytelling. Yeah. Uh, are you going to make more in-house? And what does that mean for producers? We actually, in, in Europe and across EMEA, don't have a goal to do that. Um, you know, The Witcher was a bit of an exception, I would say, just because of kind of the scope and the scale of that. But we always ask ourselves the question, is there some, you know, who, who is that partner and, and could we do that better? And the answer is generally no. So um, we are really, in, in almost every case across Europe, partnering with great um, great producers. I think for us, the real opportunity is being able to do more than one show with the same producers. So I think you look at Fabula in Italy, you look at Miso in Denmark, you look at Wiedermann and Berg in, um, in Germany. These are companies that we have great relationships with that we're excited to continue to do multiple series with. And so the more of those that we can have and the more of those relationships, there's no need for us to, to produce. What are your thoughts about the so-called the so drama bubble? Is there too much being produced? And how will Netflix secure its audience in the future? So when does it get too much? I may feel like we sit a little bit outside of this, but I think if you were to walk down the street in any given city where we're working, whether it's Rome, Paris, Cairo, and you said, do you think there's too much great Italian language content? Do you think there is too much great French language content? My guess would be they would say no. And so I think until we sort of reach that, there's such an opportunity for local language content. One of the things that's really exciting for us and, and just in how we've seen the audience change and grow is that today, 50% of the Netflix audience has watched um, a show that is not English language and not from their native language. And that's up from 30% in 2017. So you can see how quickly it is that that sort of desire to watch non-English language content is, is growing. And for us, again, it's the opportunity. 
where do European creators go if they want to pitch a, a, a show? Do they go to Netflix US? Do they go to Netflix Europe? Is there a division between the two? And what's best practice in that respect? Yeah, what I love about our team is that, um, you know, across Europe, Middle East, and Africa, we've got probably about 20 buyers, and every single one of them has the ability to say yes and green light power. So we have really decentralized decision making, which makes it really exciting and easy. And, um, you know, we are not tethered back to the US. And so, also, that just really frees up the decision making. And, and now that we have teams in Paris, they decide what French shows we're going to make. We have teams in Berlin, they decide what German shows we're going to make. And we've also recently sort of brought into our same team structure um, unscripted and doc series and stand up and sketch and kids. And so all of these buying teams are now completely based here in Europe. And I think that's a real opportunity, again, to make sure that local experts are making the choices for what audiences in each country want to watch. So what does success look like for you a, a year from now? When we come back and talk about what's happened over the next 12 months and what things you're aiming to achieve and, and, and you're sitting here with a, a sort of a, a feeling of uh, satisfaction, what is it that's going to deliver that? Have you got certain milestones you want to achieve? How might things be different? And I suppose what challenges do you think are, are along the way towards that end? I think, you know, we still have a long way to go to demystify this idea of non-English language can be high quality and impactful and award-winning and revered just in the way that the U.S. and Hollywood content is. So I think for me, the goal is to just make sure that they're on equal playing fields and that, um, you know, when we have a non-English language series nominated for an Emmy or Golden Globe, we will have really cracked it, right? So I believe that that is possible and I believe that the filmmakers we're working with believe that it's possible and I think it's just about kind of changing people's perceptions and um, you know reminding people that Hollywood is not the be-all and end-all of storytelling we're working in places like Africa where there's centuries of oral tradition of storytelling it's like great now these creators have the opportunity to do it they just didn't have that on the global platform before is there a barrier in the way for you doing what you want to do next if there, is there one thing that if it wasn't there would be easier you know, I know there's sort of quotas in Europe that are probably helpful rather than a hindrance. Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> right. that's, that's a good thing. But right. is there one thing that you wish were different in order to help you do the job that you have to do better? I think one of the things that we're exploring a lot and, um, you know, we've started thinking about ways to kind of help support writers in a different um, a different model. You know, the in the U.S., a lot of people are familiar with the showrunner model. That's not necessarily something that's been done outside um, the ability to have writers' rooms. I think we just want to make sure that our creators know what resources are available to them and, um, and that there are many different ways of working. And we're trying to support, again, going to, like, the new and, um, and up-and-coming voices that maybe haven't had as much as many years in the system but for us their voice is the exciting part so we'll help them kind of understand how the system works cool well good luck with all of that Thank thanks you. ever so much for sharing your thoughts with us today uh, fantastic uh, good luck Thank you. um ladies and gentlemen big round of applause for kelly Thank you. Thank you. Netflix Vice President of International Originals, Kelly Luganbeal, talking with C21 Editor-in-Chief and Managing Director David Jenkinson at Content London 2019. Remember, if you are at the International Drama Summit strand of the event, the full video of this session, as well as those from all the rest, is now available to you on our website. That's all for this episode and from the podcast for this year. We'll be back in 2020 with plenty more. But in the meantime, from all at C21, we wish you a fantastic festive season and a very happy new year. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.